welcome to the Bronova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, welcome friends to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau Podcast. As always, it's your host, Thomas Pierce, here to model healthy communication for men and spread a message of positivity. My guest this week is Shauna Doc Springer. She's a licensed psychologist who holds a PhD in counseling psychology. She's an award-winning podcast host, author, and an expert in psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. Uh, Doc Springer works with a variety of audiences and populations, uh, specifically with the active duty military community and post-service veteran community, as well as uh, a wide body of research and work with civilian communities. And from that, she has a number of counterintuitive truths that she's learned uh, that she can communicate and help us all have a far better, uh, far better life. So welcome, Doc, and thank you for your time. Thanks, Thomas. It's good to be here. For sure. <laughs> uh, what what do you make of the pod, this podcast overall? Like the the phenomenon of podcasts a, as they have taken off, kind of replacing radio or, or supplementing radio. Do you listen to podcasts yourself in your free time? I do, I do um, when I can, and I think you know it's uh, people are hungering for the intimacy that podcasts can scale. You know, podcasts are the way to have these conversations, and and they're long. They're often long format, which is counterintuitive because a lot of people are going to very short formats. You know, just sound bites and and quick insights. Um, that's a lot of times what people want from me. But then there's also this other side of these longer conversations that really kind of ripen over the course of a 45 minute um, deep dive into a number of different topics. Oops, sorry. Thought I turned that off. Okay, turning that off. Um, life is happening. I'll check mine too. <laughs> While we're at it, <laughs> life is happening here. Um, but the the longer format podcasts, I think people are just having kind of a compensatory hunger. The more we get into these short format soundbite type communication styles, something is lost. And it's, there's a value in really unpacking things deeply. I miss it from college. You know, we would sit around in these sections after the lecture and just talk for an hour and a half about whatever topic it was, psychological topics, uh, something related to English, literature, which is also psychology, just in a different, uh, a different mm. gown, if you will. So, Awesome. It's a skill set I'm concerned about with my generation I'm 27 and I think it's a skill that needs to be practiced and I'm interested to see what you know how my peers evolve with with it because my sample size is just my friends right and that's a not particularly representative group of people <laughs> compared to the you know 300 plus million people in the U.S. or in the world. So, yeah, it's part of my effort to, to, to bring that type of discourse because I also want to model to people that it's in, encourage people, it's good actually to reach out to someone you don't know and, and, and see what you can connect on and share. And uh, something in the psychological realm, something that's I focus on uh, are these little micro interactions. Uh, I don't know if it's something that you incorporate in your work with the people who you are counseling, but I always, I love to push myself to have the little chats and little interactions with people out in the world um, mm-hmm. because it gives me, you know, positive feelings. And then also um, I feel like it helps other people, you know, seeing someone making eye contact, sharing a moment, is mm-hmm. a good way to connect and feel alive. Um, and yeah. so I'm curious, is, is that something that you work in with your, your clients? Uh, sure. Uh, we might have different terms for it. Um, so mm-hmm. in a relationship, let's say there's a couple, a married couple or a couple that's dating or living together, and they're really focused on the 
we would call maybe bids for attention are these small and subtle cues that we give each other that the other person matters. And so you try and get someone's attention, you know, when you get that response. It can be the accumulation of those things that actually can create a solid foundation for a long-term relationship. Um, and so in the same way, I think, you know, these micro-interactions are important um, as part of the, the social fabric that we really missed during the years of the pandemic. I think before that, our society was kind of getting more and more fractured as we were kind of pulled into our own little worlds with technology and cell phone becoming almost an extension of who we are. And uh, words, uh, social words like, have you ever heard of fubbing, Thomas? You ever heard that word? <laughs> no. It's spelled P-H- U-B-B-I-N-G, fubbing. And it is a combination between phone and snubbing. So the concept is when you see somebody that wants to engage with you, and it's these micro-interactions we're talking about, what the other person will do is fub, phone snub them, mm. by putting their phone up as a block, right. and then they don't have the interaction. And so the fact that we have these new words that didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, that you're fubbing or, or ghosting is not as new. You know, it's been around for a while, but the whole idea of you can disappear without a, um, without a whiff, you know, in the way that we interact because so much of it is online. You can just ghost someone and be in their life and then not be in their life. Um, that does real damage to people. It does real damage to relationships. And when you are isolated, as we were during the pandemic, we missed out on all of these little micro interactions that would kind of organically happen if you get your, you know, Starbucks in the morning, have a little conversation with the barista, um, have a chat with somebody, you know, getting their coffee. Um, we, we really missed out on a lot of those uh, micro interactions. And so, yes, I think they're important. And I think um, they're something that we're sort of losing in the way that society has been evolving. Why, in your professional estimation, do we fub? What are we afraid of? What are we avoiding in those moments? Yeah, you're, I think, right to go down the fear trail because I think it is anxiety for a lot of people. I think when someone snubs us, a lot of time, you know, we take it personally, but I think really often the sender is just anxious. Um, I actually think we're losing our social skills our basic social skills, that it's hard for people to have small talk, to engage in live, you know, in-person communication, to have a long conversation, to sustain eye contact with people. Those things are actually things that take getting used to and practice and comfort to develop, whether we're talking about in a close relationship um, or whether we're talking about, you know, kind of out and about uh, so much of, you know, how we interact and you know, we slide by each other on the freeways. You would never look into another car and see what's going on in that car. You're just completely separate but together with everybody else. And I think so much of our society is kind of evolving in that direction that the things we took for granted, you know, just having a conversation like, how's it going? How are you really, you know, today? People are shocked and surprised sometimes when you engage them that way. And a lot of times they're not sure what to do with that or they get anxious thinking about I, I don't you know know this person why are they engaging me that's not socially normative anymore it's more normative to kind of be uh, locked into our own phone system in our own little world yeah I'm a I'm a shocker I go around and yeah shock people I talk to people <laughs> well me too you know I love I to love go it. up to like yeah. that guy with all the tattoos this is an interaction I have like throughout. So if I'm in a supermarket and there's like a guy with a million tattoos, because I've served these guys, you know, clinically, and I know that mm -hmm. not always, but a lot of times people that are really big and imposing and, and are covered with tattoos are people with a lot of childhood trauma. I know this because I've seen enough of those um, people that fit that profile in the sense of, 
a lot of times people create themselves to be the protector they wish they had had um, in a vulnerable situation when they were kids. And so you look at somebody from the outside, most people think, oh, nobody would mess with him. And that's because somebody did violate their boundaries earlier in their lives. And so they create this wall of kind of don't, don't mess with me, but they're also lonely behind that wall and sometimes not even aware of it. And so people don't engage them because the signals they're sending out are, I'm intimidating, don't engage me, don't mess with me. Um, and so I love to kind of go up to those guys and say, you know, how's it going? You know, how, how's your day going? Or can you reach that for me up on that shelf? And they're just delighted to get that kind of interaction from a stranger. Often their face changes, they soften, they smile, maybe laugh, and we have a chat for a minute. And I kind of come away feeling like it's good to show people that, you know, you can see them. You can see them and you're not afraid of them. Because I think so many people these days, they put up these walls and then they end up feeling invisible or lonely behind the wall. That's an incredible insight. And it's something that I try to, I I, I consider that with the truck phenomenon truck guys okay that's you know when i see when i see because there's there are trucks for utility right for work and then there are trucks who just providing around because they're comfortable and they're i mean they're they're the most the best selling car in the united states is a pickup truck and when i see the guy who is you know driving the posturing too right like the that 12 o'clock on the steering wheel posturing yeah (laughs) The big tinted, the tinted windows, the truck lifted, and and you know driving kind of aggressively. I'm always curious, you know, why? Why are you doing that, man? You know, because the way I process is that, like, I the way I think is like my bot, my body is my truck. You know, like I condition myself to be the truck. I don't need this physical embodiment of my strength, or sorry, um, symbolic embodiment of my strength personally. And so maybe this is another thing that explains it because they want to feel safe, right? They, it, yeah. Being in a car that's high off the ground, you have good visibility, you're not going to crash, or you're not going to be in danger. Maybe it's a similar type of phenomenon. Could be. Could be part, part of that. So if you think about, you know, kind of this idea of a bubble, right? You have this bubble of comfort, how close people can get mm-hmm. to you before you start to go, ugh. You have like a little bit of a pushback reaction or an anxiety it's different for different people and it's different based on their upbringing and their culture and their you know experiences their life experiences frankly so um that truck that huge truck could be the way of pushing the bubble out you know another 20 feet of saying you know stay back you know don't approach me i'm not comfortable with that for whatever reason you know i'm not comfortable with that or i want to set the conditions for how you perceive me. Um, It's also interesting because, you know, the truck is kind of like an American symbol to me of rugged individualism. They're not designed for a bunch of people in the back. Like a pickup truck has a cargo space and space for your dog, you know. So the kind of like iconic image is like (laughs) guy in the truck Mm -hmm. with his dog in the co-pilot seat. And this rugged individualism of he's like this lone, you know, guy on his own, kind of navigating the world, not in connection, not with a bunch of kids in the back. Um, that's also being communicated, as well as kind of a um, power and control sometimes for some people. It's like sort of like an extension of like, I am a powerful man. I am masculine. Um, it's kind of come to represent that for some people as well. And then others, they just love to ride in a truck because it's fun and it's high and they use it for what it's designed for. But I would say a lot of people that have trucks probably never go off-roading with them. You know, they probably just drive them around on city streets and use them for other reasons that are more psychological than utilitarian. And that's interesting. It's an interesting tell to, again, the childhood experiences that inform us as adults. You mentioned yeah. the tattoos. <clears throat> and so, you know, the in your work with um, soldiers, war fighters is a term I've heard you use a lot in, in your work, that 
um, persona of the large tattooed person. I have friends who are that person. And you mentioned there that they may be creating this persona to protect themselves from others or to, to create distance because they were, their boundaries were violated before. And outside of that community, just in a more general perspective of, of the average civilian listener, it is, do you find in your, over the course of your career that those boundaries being crossed as children in some way affect all of us in some ways? Is it just people who have experienced, you know, adverse childhood events, for example? Or even if we had a so, someone listening had a so-called normal, quote, good, quote, stable childhood, are yeah. those instances still, still with us? Well, you know, I think it's about trauma and about trust. And I think those are universal human experiences. Um, from working with a wide range of people in all walks of life, from C-suite, you know, kind of executive business leaders to warfighters, first responders, to civilians, to people that are, you know, long struggling with uh, chronic mental battles. Um, it's pretty clear to me that we are all impacted by trauma. Uh, later this week, I'm going to give a talk about, you know, how trauma affects the workforce, and you know, it's often that. We don't necessarily see the impact of trauma. We think about the deaths of people like Kate Spade or Anthony Bourdain that nobody would expect to struggle with that level of despair that they would take their own lives. Uh, they seem to you know, have everything. They had financial wealth. They have status. They have reputation. They're creatives. You know, they're beloved by their communities, and yet they're struggling uh, struggling really hard to the point where they ended up ending their lives. And nobody, except maybe a few people in their inner circle, really saw it coming. So I do think that trauma is a human universal and that that's something you know we really need to address more effectively. Um, with people that you know project that persona, it may be childhood stuff, but it could be trauma at any point in their lives. To me, what that signifies is low trust probably from some kind of trauma or an accumulation of different trauma experiences. But a sort of default setting of, I don't trust other people until they prove to me that they're trustworthy versus somebody who has a different, uh, maybe a more um, solid core trust where their default position is, most people are likable and good people at heart and I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm approaching them. You know, that is how I experience you, for what it's worth. And it yeah. gets confirmed <laughs> when you say you go after micro-interactions. That, mm -hmm. to me, speaks of a kind of baseline core trust that's intact in you, regardless of what traumas you've been through. It hasn't been sufficient or you've worked through it enough that you've retained a core trust there, I think. That's a fabulous insight. And I think it's, for me and perhaps other extroverts, a great way to look at other people. And also not encroach on their psychological personal space, right? If this is someone I know who has a broken core trust, for example, you know, I don't need to ask them the same amounts of questions or be as personal if I don't know them closely, for example, that, that type of thing. Well, that's another dimension, right? Is you're talking about extroversion you've identified yourself as an extroverted person what does that mean to you to be extroverted because a lot of people don't really understand that concept maybe we could unpack that for a second sounds great what does that mean to you my def yeah to me it means that i am energized by interaction as opposed to depleted and also that the <clears throat> i am desensitized to interaction and need more of it to hit my satisfaction level for socialization yeah that's a, a better definition than probably 99% of people would have given me to that question <laughs> you know you've clearly done your homework on that one uh, most people think of extroversion as just you know friendly um, and outgoing you know those two terms are often used interchangeably outgoing and friendly as though introverted people are not friendly or not as outgoing and that's not necessarily the case <laughs> It's uh, right. one of the projectives that we used to use when I taught um, personal growth 
to a large group of undergrads in psychology was let's imagine that you just had a five-hour test and you were totally drained from that test you know you're just physically and emotionally exhausted and depleted your brain is tired your brain hurts do you want to go meet up with a group of friends for dinner in a loud you know hubbub of a restaurant and catch up with them to recharge your batteries or is your first instinct I got to get away from people go home to a quiet place that's not stimulating and recharge my batteries that way and so if people are introverted they would tend to say there is no way I would want to go straight from that test into the crowded restaurant to catch up with my friends whereas extroverted people to your point are more likely to say that's how I'd recharge my batteries I would totally at the end of a test go out let's celebrate and that's how I'm going to kind of like re you know stabilize and re re-energize my batteries so people that are introverted are just as friendly in many cases but they need to pay more attention to the balance of whether they're recharging their batteries versus pushing themselves too far to make sure they have that time and space and to your point people that are more extroverted maybe it could help to have a more um, to be sensitized to maybe not everybody else recharges in the same way and so really knowing if you're in a close relationship with someone for example if you're with a more introverted person then you're going to have to compromise and negotiate a life that gives them time and space to sort of reset facts you're dropping knowledge bombs doc thank you <laughs> yeah that's 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 fabulous my, my girlfriend kendall is on that scale of she's very friendly and social also i'll just reiterate i love what you said about the implication of extroverts or people saying extroverts are friendly and outgoing <laughs> is not that introverts are not friendly. I think that's a really important yeah. Yeah. <laughs> distinction. And uh, yeah, my, in my relationship, it's the same thing. I know that, for example, you know, on a weekend, if I need a quotient, let's say, of ten units of interaction to be yeah. like, feel properly socialized, maybe Kendall needs five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she can meet up with you later after having you know, but it's that kind right. of conversation, right? That's a micro interaction to notice, you know, like in her, for example, if she kind of feels like she's withdrawing, maybe she just needs a little bit of time to recharge, right? And so having those conversations in our relationships about what do you actually need? There's not, this is not like a moral dimension, you know, like there's no bad or good here. It's just how each of us are wired to kind of be optimal. And so building in a lifestyle that allows for both of you to get what you need in terms of the level of social stimulation promotes a happier relationship. Totally. And, and on relationships, my audience will be very familiar with the Harvard study of adult development. Yep. The, and, and that study was an inspiration for you in, in a large study that you did and I think speaks to your interest in relationships and the importance of relationships. So with that context of, you know, my audience is familiar with relationships, positive and quality, uh, quantity and quality of close interactions and it, positive interactions are very good for our health. Mm-hmm. And so within that kind of idea, what are you, how do you implement that? Let's say with, um, let's say with a, a veteran who obviously has a different set of context and circumstances to a civilian individual, but are you, are you drawing from that body of knowledge working with a more specific population? Uh, well, the study that I did that you're referencing was about 1,200 women in 2008, mostly Harvard graduates. Um, and that was really before I started working with veterans. So those were kind of two lines, two discrete lines of work close relationships. I had gone to University of Florida for my graduate degree and studied 200 civilian newlywed couples over the first four years of their marriage. And we put them in the lab and we said, now what really bothers you about each other? Okay, talk about that, you know, and we'd watch them kind of have conflict and, and really, you know, code how they, they navigated conflict either poorly or well. 
Um, and then I started working with veterans, and then eventually the two lines of work kind of merged. Um, I do think positive interactions are important for, for people um, in general. I do think it's very clear to me that veterans are a totally different tribe, that when they go into the military, that there's a radical resocialization that happens in boot camp around the whole set of values that they hold. And so when they transition out of the military, they feel like they've been dropped onto Mars. They can't go back to the person that they were before, and there are a million micro disconnects in the values they hold and the values that most of society holds. And I think those things um, happen all the time, you know, imperceptibly to most of us, but in a way that really makes them feel like they don't have a home to come back to. So a lot of my work is, um, yes, in kind of helping them come all the way home into their relationships, into work settings that are uh, sometimes better suited to who they are and who they've become as a warrior. Um, but I do think, you know, this need for, for positive experiences is key and that there's a, a kind of a big gap in trust between a lot of people who serve and a lot of the, the civilians who want to support them really well. And I'll, I'll give you a good example. We just had Memorial Day, right? So we had Memorial Day, and a lot of times civilians will say to veterans, Happy Memorial Day. And it's not happy. Memorial yeah, Day is a time of actually massive trauma for veterans, right? Yeah. It's a time when they're visited by the ghosts of those they've lost, when they're often in deep grief, and they're going back to those memories and trying to reconnect with brothers and sisters in arms that have fallen. And you've got the barbecues and the Memorial Day sales and people wishing them a happy Memorial Day and as if it's something to celebrate when it's actually a solemn and sacred weekend of grief for them. And maybe the best thing to do is stand with them at a gravesite of someone they love like family, that they don't share blood with, but they love like family, and honor that person together. But civilians don't understand that often and don't know that and don't know how to support our warriors. And so that was part of the impetus for me to write Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, was to really help people that want to support our, our nation's warfighters to understand a little bit about their psychological landscape and how we can rest, you know, bring them all home. Yes, important point. And I do agree that most Americans, if for most Americans, Memorial Day is a holiday. It's a downside of the structures of our society that everything, any kind of holiday is immediately commercialized. Yeah. Oh, it's Memorial Day. Great time to buy a mattress. Right. <laughs> it's like... Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Buy that and, and truck and it'll not... put you at a distance, right, from everybody else. Right, it's right. Time to buy that monster <laughs> truck. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. Please leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To enjoy full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube. You can search Pro Nouveau or simply follow the link in the episode description below. If you or someone you know would make a fascinating guest for this kind of conversation, you can reach me via email. That address is contact at bronouveau.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. So you work with people who have been in this social reorientation starting in boot camp all the way through their careers and then they transition out. There, if we look at institutions of society, like education, commercial workforce, military, the military is not accidental. It is a outcropping it is a vehicle it is a tool of the government to achieve priorities domestic and foreign and a lot of people would say that the way our military is so gigantic for example 
there, there's a lot of discussions about the militaries, the pros and cons of it, the U.S. military, for example. But these are individual people whose lives are forever transformed by their experiences in the institution. So from you, as, as a, how do you conceive of the military as this? Because you care so deeply for the people impacted by its existence. Do you ever think about kind of at a more systems level, is this institution doing the right thing? Is it necessary as it exists today? Because there are countries, for example, that don't have such a militarized military, if that makes sense. And I understand that there's history, there's a lot of geopolitics, there's a lot of differences, but it doesn't necessarily have to be this way, is the, what I'm positing. The military can be the best thing that happens for someone's development or the worst thing, depending on what chain of command you end up in. So for somebody that has a traumatic background, which is some who enlist, some who serve, um, it can be something that's hard to recover from when they end up in a traumatic chain of command where they're hazed or bullied or sexually assaulted. And these things happen, you know, because the military is full of people and it's a microcosm of, you know, bigger trends and abuses of power. So certainly that happens. Um, and when that happens, sometimes it's there should be accountability, but sometimes there's potential for widespread abuse of power because there is a hierarchy and a rank order and people's lives are, um, for a time, they, they, they submit their individual rights for something greater than themselves. And for the same reason, it can be the most amazing thing for a lot of people, even those who have a traumatic background. If they're in a healthy chain of command, then there's a sense of what's right, there's a standard, there's accountability, and they get exposed to amazing leadership, um, and they become leaders, and they become people that are civic assets that can become business, corporate leaders, nonprofit leaders. Um, and so, you know, back in 2019, I wrote with Jason Ron Caroni, he's a retired battalion commander from the 101st Airborne a 400-page manual on military transition that's designed to help people transitioning to transition um, with pride and to navigate that path with confidence because that can be done with the right insights and the right support. And the thing is that, yes, although, Thomas, I've definitely focused on you know the military for a good portion of my career, now as chief psychologist for Stella, what I'm seeing is that everything I've learned about trauma actually matters for everybody. It applies to everybody. So Stella is a um, network of about 40 clinics. I'm in Chicago right now. Tomorrow, actually, we're going to launch a uh, ribbon cutting for our 9,000 square foot uh, center for excellence in Chicago. It'll be our flagship clinic. And we have treated 6,000 people, mostly civilians, um, in the past couple years. Um, so we launched right before the pandemic, a few weeks before the pandemic. And Stella provides really innovative treatments, uh, like something called the stellate ganglion block, that is an injection into two clusters of nerves in the neck of an anesthetic medication, so not psychoactive, and it resets your adrenaline system. So for people, not just military veterans, but a lot of people these days are kind of locked into fight or flight, and they're not sleeping well, you know, since the pandemic, and they're overwhelmed with, you know, anxiety or irritability, um, have difficulties concentrating. This 15-minute injection can reset them back to a state of calm and control in their own bodies. And so Stella is, you know, not just for veterans or first responders. It's for, for all humans because trauma is a human universal. And we're seeing incredible outcomes for people that are civilian and veteran who have trauma that happened you know 25 years ago trauma that happened yesterday who have different kinds of trauma and these treatments these new biological treatments to include ketamine actually which is another thing we're going to be um, launching in, in the near term they they work whether you believe they'll work or not 
which to me is a, a strong argument for the piece of this, which is a biological injury, not just a psychological condition. There's something biologically that happens to us when we are exposed to trauma. So my work is really to take what I've learned at the extremes from war fighters and first responders and really help them and everybody um, to navigate all kinds of different life traumas and build better relationships. Congratulations on the new facility. That's Thank epic. Thank you. It's an exciting time to it's, be here. It's, oh, yeah. That's, and it's so, so essential, the, the gulf between need and supply, demand and supply of psychological services is massive. So, so the injectable is very interesting. For, in, in your opinion or in the data, in the research you have done as an organization rolling that out, what are the differences between this kind of injectable and, say, a long-term meditation practice or a breathwork practice that also calms the nervous system? Yeah. I think when people are sufficiently injured by trauma exposure, there's a real risk of telling them that, you know, a meditation or a mindfulness practice is going to help calm them when there's something kind of blocking them. So when your amygdala changes and you're constantly um, in fight or flight, sometimes mindfulness and meditation, which can be life-changing for some people, isn't up to the task. And there's a real risk of making people feel like something is wrong with them or they're doing it wrong or, you know, creating shame when you're pushing them to do something that, that really is now beyond volitional control. Because what we're seeing is that with enough trauma, a lot of what happens is beyond our ability to kind of pull back and control, where people will have like reactions before they're even consciously aware. They will get a surge of anger. Now, interestingly, the injectable came out of work with hot flashes in women with menopause, also non-voluntary, right? So you get a hot flash, that's biological. That's a biological, you know, hormone-mediated issue. And I would remember sitting with warfighters and supporting them, and they would have kind of this male version of hot flashes where you just feel the heat kind of come off them. They would get all red in the face and they get really worked up. And it was not something that they could control. So what I think is that mindfulness and meditation are an essential piece of uh, maintaining calm and control. But for a lot of people, there's an injury there that we can see on a brain scan. We can effectively address with a 15 to 20 minute Injection that's only an anesthetic. It's not psychoactive. Ketamine is also effective, but it's a different kind of mechanism and medication. So you treat the injury, and then you do the work. Like, I'm a psychologist, right? So I don't ever say, oh, we can just give a shot and somebody's cured. Not at all. People have to do the work and develop the insights and apply them and think about how trauma has changed their identity and their relationships, how they navigate the world. And then mindfulness and meditation become an essential part of how you keep your body in that kind of optimal zone of kind of calm and control and, you know, kind of maintain those gains uh, over the long term. So I think it's a phenomenal intervention when it's sequenced after biological intervention that targets the biological injury and trauma work that really helps people with the thinking and behavioral patterns. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's very cool. And is this a treatment that's available at scale? Are there other institutions or clinics providing it? Because it sounds like it could be transformational for a lot of people. It is transformational. Uh, we did research on the largest study of this stellate ganglion block, dual sympathetic reset, it was 327 people. And 83% of them got a positive outcome by the standards set by the National Center for PTSD. Um, and the average outcome was three times the magnitude of what would be considered a clinically significant positive outcome. So it's absolutely life-altering for most of the people that we treat. Um, nobody's doing it like Stella is. I mean, we're just, we're, this is, the chief medical officer, Dr. Eugene Lipov, is the person who is 
um, widely celebrated for pioneering this for trauma symptoms. And we have about 40 clinics across the U.S., Australia, and Israel. Um, and we're introducing ketamine now as a second product line to kind of develop this model that it's the biological treatment with the psychological treatment paired together that really helps people get the best outcomes. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is widely available um, through Stella Center all across the U.S. And there are other, you know, clinics and outfits that are kind of small shops that do it. Typically, they are not doing our protocol. Um, typically, they're doing one single injection. Uh, the dual sympathetic reset is two different injections. There's a number of optimizing advantages to our protocol. And that's why uh, there's a study at NYU that'll be a a multi-year study. It's a $3.5 plus million study using pre and post fMRI. So we're going to do brain scans before and after, and they're using our protocol because it's kind of, that's the most advanced way to do it. So let's really give a test to, you know, does trauma cause a biological injury? Yes, I think. Uh, Can we see it on a brain scan? We believe we can, and we hope to prove that. And can it be healed with the right uh, treatment and the right support? And we hope to also establish that once and for all. Fascinating. That is fabulous, and I love it because it's going to be so impactful for so many people, especially because it's accessible, right? Well, the the sequencing of counseling post-injections is tricky at scale, right? Because we need competent practitioners and then we need follow through from the individuals to maintain and of course, but that's the problem with all therapies, right? <laughs> the follow through. <laughs> yeah, it's it huge. is. You know, with ketamine, um, it's also very important to offer integration. So do you know much mm-hmm. about ketamine, Thomas? Mm-hmm. Have you dipped a toe yet in that? No, I, I've uh, I've seen people do it uh, recreationally, <laughs> but uh, that's about it. Uh, but it's it sounds like a when I hear integration, I think of um, like a ayahuasca, for example, integrating back into life after the experience and taking time to reflect on what was learned before kind of rejoining normal life. Ayahuasca is very powerful and it's illegal here in the U.S. So I have warfighters that go to places like Costa Rica to do these ayahuasca retreats. Sometimes it's life-changing. Sometimes they get scary outcomes. It's not regulated. There's no safety protocols around it. So I think it has potential, but it's it's a wild west, frankly. Ketamine is different. Ketamine is, um, it is a psychedelic medication, but when it's not used uh, recreationally, but in a medical treatment setting. Um, at Stella, we, we do it only by infusion, and that matters because if you take an injection or you do a lozenge, you're going on that trip, whether something bad comes up for you or not. With an infusion, um, it's what's called 100% bioavailable, means it goes into your system very quickly and we can stop it very quickly if there's something that happens that's not helpful. But it's mm-hmm. fascinating because... Ketamine will give you a dreamlike state. Imagine having the most important dream of your life that's full of insights for your healing that are for you and you alone. And you have it in this dreamlike state where you have conversations, you see things, you come to new insights, your brain makes new connections that you couldn't before. Ketamine lowers the fear response. And there's something about how it works that helps your brain make new connections. So when we're doing it in a medically monitored setting, that means we don't ever do it outside of a clinic at Stella because we're responsible innovators. We do it, you know, medically supervised with infusion only. And then the day after the session with the medication, we do an integration session. And the purpose of the integration session is to meet one-on-one with one of our Stella providers to help make meaning of what was in the dream and help you put it into action in your life. And so what both of these things do, stellate ganglion block and ketamine, is they actually do address the shortage of good therapists in the sense that they accelerate and enhance therapy. Because if, if you're trying to do therapy with somebody that's all jacked up in their body, they're not really with you, 
and they can't really even hear you very well when you're in the room with your you know, therapist. So a lot gets lost in translation. When I started doing work with the stellate ganglion block, I would have these experiences where I would say, we've covered this before, but this person didn't really hear me the first time or the fifth time, you know? Um, whereas when they were calm <laughs> yeah. in their own body, they could hear me and really apply what they were learning. And so ketamine is the same in that it accelerates clinical outcomes. And so you don't need to do 20, 40 sessions, often with a therapist, to get the same kind of outcomes. You can get in a much shorter, more focused, more effective uh, course of treatment that combines biological and psychological. Wow. And it's quite the endorsement from you, for me particularly, as a psychologist, right? As you are a psychologist, yeah. <laughs> your world is therapy. Right. And you are saying this accelerates. This is this yeah. is hundred percent useful. But I run up against that all the time in my field of people that feel threatened by these biological treatments and, mm -hmm. and are concerned that it will replace what they do. Um, and I don't take that position at all. I, I think really what I've been advancing in the past few years is there's a new model that we should all be behind, which is get people addressed in terms of their biological injury and then do the work you do, do the psychological, you know, support and develop their insights and help them learn to navigate challenges differently. And the two together are going to get patients the best outcomes. So that's what you should do. It's not about whether, you know, you do your work well. It's about doing it in a concerted way that really gives people the best chance of long-term healing. Absolutely. If somebody is supposed to be a healer, and they're more concerned about their yeah. job security. There's something uh, uh, misaligned there. Yeah, 100%. In my, in, from my, in my opinion. <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm just going to leave that statement yeah. there because I couldn't have said it better myself, you know, and I, I, I do run into that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Well, we're all human, right? We're all human. Everybody's, everybody's got their own, their own stuff. We had a interesting discussion with uh, my my friend Chris, who's a, uh, he just completed his, um, his doctorate. I'm embarrassed. I forget exactly what it's in, but, oh no, um, doctor of social work. And we talked about the wounded healer concept. Um, and we also discussed, this will be my final question around, around this. And then we can transition off the, off the recording is he was discussing Chris, Dr. Dusing was discussing his approach to the work, and he is a contemporary psychoanalyst. He's also an expert in DBT, and he's also um, certified by the California Institute of Calif Integrated, California Integrated, the the hippie, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, hippie yeah. outfit in, yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> But they're actually yeah, at the yeah. forefront of doing stuff with ketamine and biological agents. So um, that awesome. program is ideally placed for what I think is going to be a sea change in how we approach mental health. Awesome. So he, we were discussing these topics and in, in his approach. And so do you have a set approach with your clients or is it very, I know in your work you talk a lot about individuals and how individuals are primary because everyone's different. But if you do, you have an overall orientation towards the work when it comes to a modality or a you know theoretical orientation. It's funny you should ask. Um, for for many years since 2016, I've run a blog on psychology today called Free Range Psychology, where I argue that mm. it's um, it's not going to be the way to practice to have a theoretical orientation. Um, but your friend Chris is a good example. You know, you cited three different influences, right? He's a contemporary psychoanalyst. He's also trained in DBT. He also has kind of input from CIS. Uh, that is going to be the way of the future. We need to all be practicing with range and flexibility to meet the needs of people that are different from each other, you know, different, you know, in terms of what they need. Their personalities are different. Some are introverts, some are extroverts, some are action-oriented, some are more contemplative. Some people think that emotions are the high road to healing. Some people you can access through their, their thought life. 
some people need to just accept that their suffering is a passenger on the bus, you know, and they're just going to live with it, like an acceptance and commitment therapy kind of approach. You need to be able to do couples therapy and individual therapy. So my whole premise is that we should be free-range psychologists and practitioners and healers. Um, and for a time there, you know, I would say, no, I don't have a theoretical orientation. And people in my field would look at me like I just burped um, because, <laughs> you know, it was sort of an unpopular position to take. But I think as the field of care and, and healing moves more towards precision medicine and curated care, the only way you actually can do that is if you practice with flexibility and range. So I'm unapologetically integrative. I've been influenced by a lot of different kinds of work, um, including attachment theory, um, some of the some of the behavioral stuff, but also emotionally focused therapies, um, couples therapy, family systems work, um, many different kinds of theories and approaches that work for different patients. There is no one right way to treat patients. And so the Psychology Today blog, Free Range Psychology, takes people through case studies where I talk about, you know, going to the morgue with a patient who had a fear of death or somebody who had a fear of germs. Okay, I had a cockroach that I brought into the clinic and, you know, interacting with that cockroach and, like, getting over that fear of germs was what that patient needed. Um, And there are many different, you know, kind of examples there of treating things like road rage and that you have to take a really tailored approach if you want to get the best results. So that's how I stand on the issue. And I'm really unapologetically an advocate for free range psychology. Makes sense to me. (laughs) We don't, we, I think in, in history, ancient history, modern history, present day, it doesn't work to be prescriptive for very long, right? It, 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 we are individuals. So yeah, I'll, like you said, I'll leave it at that. Well said. Um, well, Dr. Springer, thank you so much for your time. It was a really uh, fascinating conversation and really great to learn about your work with Stella as well as that blog. That sounds fascinating. You have many uh, spinning plates in the air and it's very impressive. And thank you for generously sharing your time with us. Thanks, Thomas. Appreciate your support. And it was uh, fun to have this conversation with you. For sure. For anyone interested to learn more, uh, head over to docdocshawnaspringer.com and that's where you can find more about Doc Springer.